So back in 2000, year 2000, it's the beginning of the year, uh, Billy Graham's hometown, some leaders in Billy Graham's hometown, invited him to come to a luncheon where they wanted to honor him. He was 82 years old at the time. He would live to be 100, but already he uh, wasn't taking public speaking. Uh, he wasn't speaking publicly usually. His Parkinson's was advanced enough. Uh, but he went because they promised that he wouldn't have to give a big speech or anything like that. They just wanted to honor him. So, so he went to the luncheon and they, they said all kinds of wonderful things about him. And then he got up to just say a few words. And when he got up, he said, uh, this occasion reminds me of something I just read this week. Einstein had been awarded by uh, Time Magazine or designated by Time Magazine as the man of the century. And so he said, it reminds me of a story from Einstein's life. It was time that he was riding in a train. And the conductor came up to Einstein to punch his ticket, and he couldn't find the ticket. He checked in his pocket, checked in his other pocket, shirt pockets, pants pockets, couldn't find it. Checked in his bag, couldn't find it. And finally, the conductor said, Mr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I believe you got a ticket. You bought a ticket, don't, don't worry about it. And Einstein says, thank you. So the conductor goes, punching other tickets, gets to the end of the train, he's about to go to the other car, and he just looks back and he sees Einstein on his hands and knees looking for the ticket under the seats around him. And so he hurries back and he goes, uh, Mr. Einstein, we know who you are. It's okay. And he goes, uh, sir, I too know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going. And so Billy Graham continued, he said, you see the suit I'm wearing? I went out and bought a new suit for this occasion. My family said I'm getting a little slovenly in my, in my dress. I used to be a really sharp dresser. And he said, I've, I bought this for this occasion and one other occasion. This is the suit I'm gonna be buried in. So when you hear that Billy Graham has died, I don't want you to think about this suit, but I want you to know this. I want you to know that I know who I am, but I also know where I'm going. And so that's what we're gonna be talking about today. The Bible puts those two concepts together, knowing who you are and knowing where you're going. And if you were to summarize at least one part of our passage today, it's this, if you know whose you are, you'll know where you're going. If you know whose you are, you'll know where you're going. Now, of course, Billy Graham was talking about where he was going to spend eternity, and you can be sure uh, that what followed that short story was at least a quick presentation of the gospel for the people that were there, because that's Billy Graham, you know? So he wanted to make sure that they could know who they were and where they were going. Because where we spend eternity is extremely important, of course, but the way the Bible talks about it and how we talk about it, what eternity is, are sometimes vastly different from each other. It's like we don't think in terms of eternity oftentimes in the terms that the scripture thinks of eternity and speaks of eternity. So before we look at how we can know where we're going, because that's really where we're going with this sermon, before we can see how we know where we're going, I want to look at what... Um, where it is that we're going. And our passage does both those things in incredible ways. In fact, this chapter, I, I wrote a, a blog post about this um, 
that this is my absolute favorite chapter in the Bible. And it's not just my favorite, it's a lot of people's favorites. I thought it was just my favorite for a long time and then just about everybody says, oh no, Romans 8. If it's not, it's one of your top three. Especially um, a, a good portion, like the, the whole second half of this chapter. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to jump into the middle of the passage that we're looking at today because it really talks about not only knowing where we're going, not only knowing how we can know where we're going, but it describes where it is that we're going in terms that I don't think we normally think of. Terms that we usually use to describe it. So beginning in verse 18. I consider, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Now we're going to just stop twice in this reading. This is one of those times I want you to, to get the picture here because the picture here is of the entire creation. One translation puts it this way, standing on tiptoe, looking for what's coming. And it's talking about the return of Christ and what's going to happen with the return of Christ. So verse 19 again. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now a new image, and the image now is of being in labor. The creation is in labor. And it's not only going to say that the creation is in labor, but we're in labor. In a passage we're not going to read, a few verses in here, it says the Holy Spirit, God in us, is in labor, groaning in labor as well, and praying for us in our suffering, in everything that we go through, interceding for us. So we know that the whole, verse 32, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we ate, wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet. We wait for it patiently. Do you see how different that is from what we usually think of when we think about where we're going? Because if I were to ask you right now, as a Christian, where are you going after you die? Almost certainly, it would be my first answer. I'd say heaven. And that's correct. Um, that's a, that, that is a biblical term. But when the Bible speaks about where we're going, it has more in mind than whether we're just going to heaven or not. Much, much more. The New Testament speaks about our destiny regularly in terms, of, in fact, the whole Bible does, in terms of the destiny of the entire creation. Not just my destiny, your destiny, but the destiny of the entire creation. And how um, does this specifically tie in with our destiny? How does this describe our destiny? If I were to ask you, what happens after you die? What's, what's your eternal destiny besides where you're going? What's your eternal destiny? How long would it take you to get to the phrase, 
that Paul uses to describe it in this passage. Maybe never. I don't know if I'd get to it, short of just because I've thought about it in regard to the sermon. Look at verse 23, the very end. He talks about the destiny for us individually as the redemption of our bodies. See, that's very different from the conception, I think, that we usually have, and certainly from the way that we talk. We talk about the redemption of our souls, of our spirit, that sort of thing. Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies because it's much bigger. It's, it's this, this whole creation, including our bodies. Jesus rose bodily. It's important. It's really, really important. I'm going to show you in just a few moments, not quite yet, but in a few moments, why it's so important to get this. Why it's so important to understand this. First of all, I just want to, I want to share with you a story that the great um, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright shares uh, that gives an analogy to this passage and what we're looking at here. How it gives this grand expanse of what God is, is about to. And he, he illustrates it, uh, its, its importance by talking about a, a forest that's right by his office or by an office he used to have. And he used to go out for walks at lunchtime, or hikes, uh, pretty vigorous hikes. And whenever he would get into the trail system, it was a forest with a trail system that went all through it, and he would take different trails, and whenever he would get in there, there was a trail that he would always bypass, and there was a reason he bypassed it, he said it was so overgrown. He said there was a sign there, probably saying there's a trail here, but it would be so difficult to get past it, and he didn't know what it said, because all he could see, because all the growth around it was a V, and it was all faded. And so he would go on other trails. And one day, as he walked by that trail, somebody had cleared it, and the sign had been cleared, and the V, the rest of the word was, it was the word view. And he's a sucker for views. <laughs> so he says he took it. Now the whole trail had not been cleared, so he's trudging through mud, and, and uh, he says it comes, came a certain point where he's in a big incline, and it's, it's, it's pretty tough, and he's getting out of breath. But as he got higher and higher and higher, he started to see a clearing in the woods of, of, of sun coming through. So he knew he was getting to the top, to the view. And when he eventually got there, he comes to this view and he realizes what he'd been missing all these times while going out there. Because from this spot, you could see the whole forest trail system. You could see all the, the forest. You could see a village up ahead, beautiful little village in a valley. And then you could see other villages as smoke was rising from people's the chimneys. And he said, he felt like he could see the whole of England from there. And he said it was just a stunning, a stunning view. And he'd been missing it all this time. And then he drives home the analogy. He says, Romans 8, Romans 8 is like that view. You see the astoni with astonishing clarity, he says, the bigger plan of salvation, what God is actually up to. And he suggests that we tend to be so preoccupied with our own destiny, you know, what's going to happen to me after I die, that we miss the bigger picture presented by the whole story of God. And it's one of the perils of our individualism is, and our self-focus, is that we get so focused on ourselves, we miss really what God is doing all around us and what he's planning on doing. And you and I need to remember that our future hope isn't simply about looking toward heaven. Our hope is about a day when God will rule in the new heavens and the new earth. That God is going to rule. That's what the kingdom of God is about. God is gonna rule in the new heavens and the new earth. And all that was wrong 
and painful and evil will be made right. So our lives now, the whole teaching of Jesus, the teaching of the New Testament, our lives now should be marked by the rule of God, doing what's right and seeking through the power of God to make things right. That's what our lives are about. So you start getting the bigger picture, you start realizing this, this impacts, this isn't about just going to heaven and living a good life. This is about being about what God is about, making things right, pursuing compassion and justice and all those kinds of things. It's why this passage is so important. Because right now in our, in our, in our cultural moment, in where we live, it's stylish. It's actually stylish, it's, it's, it's like, you are really in when you are concerned about things like sex trafficking or extreme poverty or hunger. But our culture, the culture that we live in, the air that we breathe, has basically eliminated almost entirely the foundations for why those things are important. It's still stylish, but if you really start pressing, Somebody who, not, not the person who is being downtrodden, but the person who is in a position of power, in a, you know, kind of where we are in terms of financially and all that sort of thing. If you really start pressing, why do you care about all these other people? There's not a great, fun, it makes me feel better. When it doesn't make me feel better anymore because I'm not being rewarded by the rest of the culture, it's not gonna last. It's likely, it's likely not gonna last. Uh, Mark Sayers, pastor and author, he, he puts it this way, we want in our culture, we want the kingdom, the things that the rule of God brings, without the king. That's what we want. Our culture wants God's kingdom values of compassion and justice specifically, but without the king who calls for those things. So before long, probably justice and compassion aren't gonna be stylish. But we as believers, we are still going to be pursuing compassion and justice because it's what our king cares about. It's what he calls us to. So important to have this bigger picture as we live out our lives. All right, so that's the bigger picture. That's where we're going. Uh, so how can we know, as Billy Graham said, how can he know where he's going? This passage really tells us about that and um, how you can know what your destiny is, this new heaven and the new earth, the redemption of our bodies. Well, one of the ways that we can know what our eternal destiny is, is if we are fighting. We find ourselves in a fight. Uh, you see this in verses 14 through 16, so we're going to go back a little bit. You see this in those verses, but even more you see it in the context because this passage that we're looking at today is really, and especially 14 through 16, is a culmination of something that began all the way in Romans chapter five. And since Romans chapter five, it's been one of the, one of the major themes has been talking about the fight that we're in, the struggle that we're in, in our lives. Um, a struggle with, with sin, how we find ourselves oftentimes do, not doing the thing and reverting to living outside, as if we were living outside of Christ in the battle that's going on uh, in our lives. And in the, Reflection questions, I gave just a few highlights of what is said earlier in this passage. I'm not going to take you there uh, now, but that's, that's the, 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 where, where this is all going. And, and here's the underlying point that he's making throughout all of that, one of the underlying points. He says, if you have this fight going on 
with sin and temptation in your life, it's evidence, actually it's evidence that you belong to God because it means you have the Holy Spirit. That's where the fight's happening. You have the Holy Spirit life living in you. And, and this is really important. Paul says those who have the Holy Spirit in them are children of God, adopted by him. That's how we can know where we're going. We've got the fight, means we have the spirit. All right, so look at verse 14. For those who are led by the spirit of God, this isn't the first time he's talked about it. Again, in the context, he's been talking about this. But now he says they are children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Specifically here in this context, it's fear of God's judgment. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, you cry out, Abba, Father. You call out to God with the term that Jesus gave us, Abba, from his language, which is like saying dad. It's, a, it's an endearing term of a, of a, usually like a grown person towards their father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The fight, there's a fight going on. But the fight and the struggle uh, is not, isn't definitive. It's not like if you have the fight in you, that means you're a child of God and you're, you, know, you have this destiny. Because people who just have religion, who don't have a relationship with Christ, also sometimes have a fight. People who just want to get better have a fight going on inside of them. Okay, So it's not to say... That if you have this fight, then, oh, you're in. You're good with God. <laughs> but what it is to say is if you have a struggle or you battle with, with sin and, and temptation, it doesn't disqualify you. <laughs> it's like you have to have that fight going on in your life. Otherwise, there would be no evidence of the spirit in your life. So your struggle with sin is not a disqualifier. In the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the struggle with sin. So... Next week, we're going to look at the struggle with what, what the, the world calls the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so next week, we're going to look at the world, very specifically meaning not people, but the influences in our world. Then we're going to be looking at the flesh the week after that, which is that part of us, not, not our skin, it's that part of us that's not yet redeemed, the redemption of our bodies, right? That part of us that is not yet redeemed, that is still kind of fighting with God and with the Holy Spirit. And then the third week, we're going to look at the devil and the fight we have with spiritual, cosmic spiritual forces against us. So that's, that's where we're going. Now, Paul is making the point that whose we are determines our eternal destiny with God. We have the Spirit that makes us sons. And it says sons because in that culture, sons were the ones that got the inheritance. And we're not just Sons, we are co-heirs, we're heirs, and we're not just heirs of the inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ, which just, if you really stop and think about it, can really blow your mind. We're adopted. We are right now adopted children. And that fact means we will share in his glory. That's the point that Paul is making. We can be confident of that. We can live confident of that. We're, the last passage we're going to read today, I just want to say this, a little preview. You can't read that 
um, and get anything out of it or any joy from it, and it's supposed to be a joyful, it's a joyful, worshipful passage, without having confidence that what he's saying is true. And the building up, that we, we can be confident that we're God's children. So, we can know our eternal destiny is with God if we have this fight with sin, which sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And we can know our eternal destiny is with God, number two, if we're suffering. If you're suffering. Again, everyone suffers as part of the human condition. I'm not saying that if you suffer, that means you're good with God. That's not the point. What he's getting at is that everyone who is good with God also suffers and struggles. That's not a message that is universally taught in churches today. You will struggle. It is, a, it is an evidence of, it's, it's evidence of your relationship with God. So look at verse 18. He says, I consider that our, Paul, theirs, as he's writing to them, he's just assuming that they, they suffer. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering is not a sign that God has rejected you. Suffering is not a sign that God has forgotten you. It's never a sign of that. His beloved, those he loves, will suffer. His children will suffer. Now, the reason for the struggle with sin, the reason for the reality of suffering, we talk here a lot about this, and we teach it in our Story of God course, is because we're living between the first coming and second coming of Christ. We live in this tension between what has already happened and what has not yet happened. There's another way of, of looking at it. There's lots of ways of looking at it. Uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 and he develops it throughout these chapters, gives us a, a little bit of a different way, and it forms kind of a, a framework for what he's talking about throughout this passage. And so back in chapter 5, he talks about living in two different realms. Again, that's kingdom rules, okay? What are, what's, who's ruling in your life? And so the first realm that we live in as we're born and as we're growing up is the realm of Adam. So we're born... In the line of Adam, we, we live with sin and with death. We're even born into sin, and that's the realm of Adam. Then there's the realm of Christ, and so Paul sets that up. He says that's why Christ came. He's the second Adam, and he begins this new realm, this new rule where there's grace, where there's righteousness, where there's life. And so what's happening to the believer is we're being transferred from the realm of Adam, sin and death, to the realm of Christ, righteousness and life and grace. But we live our lives now, and this is why chapters five through eight are there, to say we're, we, we're living in attention, aren't we? We're living in this, like, we're in Christ, we have, by his grace, his righteousness, and he's given us life. But we still have the struggle with sin and death. And you can't eliminate it. Again, some of the greatest, the worst teaching that is out there today, and it's like a worldwide movement, is the kind of teaching that neither acknowledges the already or, and not yet, and doesn't acknowledge this fact of Scripture. Tries to put us completely over here, and in all kinds of weird ways, uh, gets us to kind of 
pretend like this isn't in our lives. This tension isn't there. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous teaching. It's a, it's a very unhealthy type of, of teaching. So uh, you can know, Paul is saying, that you have, that your destiny is with God, that you're right with God if you're fighting with sin and temptation, if you are um, suffering in your life. This next one is, is the one that really, this one is exclusive, okay? Everyone suffers, everyone, you know, a lot of people have the fight going on inside of them. But this one is exclusive, and the third one is you're trusting God. You are putting your trust in God. You're believing God. Now, believing in the Bible is always more than just simply believing something about something. It's always about putting trust in God, putting trust in him, trusting Trusting and trusting yourself to what God has said. Now, here's the problem though. Sometimes we worry whether or not we have trusted God enough. You ever had that struggle? You ever looked at your life and wondering, I don't know. I don't really know if I've trusted God enough in my life. Because we look at our failures and we look at our, our suffering uh, and even sometimes in our successes, we feel, sometimes God feels so far away, and, and this becomes a problem for us. We wonder, well, you know, do I really, do I really have Christ? Now, J.D. Greer, uh, who's an author and, and pastor, he tells a story that a lot of you are going to uh, identify with. I certainly uh, identify with, not to the extreme that he experienced it, but I certainly uh, identify with certain parts of this. He said that as a young boy with his parents, he prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. Now, if that language is new to you, let me just, quick, he, he, he did what the scripture calls us to do, to put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. He died for our sins, and he gave us his rightness with God. All right? And so you put your trust in that, and the Bible says a transfer happens. And that's where we're adopted, and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. Okay, so he prayed to receive Christ as Lord and Savior as a child. Uh, I don't know how many years later, he's maybe six years old or something like that, he said when he was in ninth grade, he had a crisis of faith. Oh, and, and when he was like a kid, his parents felt, yes, you have, you know, you have, this is genuine, and his pastor felt it was genuine, so he was baptized. So he goes in ninth grade, he starts having a crisis of faith. And he starts thinking, back then, I don't think I really understood it. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I really trusted uh, God. And he's looked at, you know, how many times he sinned and, and the failures in his life. And so he wanted to make sure that he had trusted Christ. So he prayed to receive Christ again. Now, that, that's where I say I... I can identify with, that, with this. I remember as a kid, I don't know how many times in our church, come on forward if you want to receive Christ. Maybe five times. <laughs> All right. Even though the Bible says once, <laughs> once, that's, that's it. You, you begin that relationship. You become his son. You don't have to keep doing it over and over again. But he was, he, 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 he really, he wanted to make sure, and he went to his pastor and he said, you know, today I am truly, I am truly inviting Christ into my life. This is my real conversion. That back there wasn't, I need to be rebaptized because baptism follows a confession of faith. So his pastor agreed to it and he baptized him. Um, so 
fast forward a couple more years, and he starts having another crisis of faith. And he starts thinking, I don't think I was sorry enough for my sin. There are people who cry. You know, they get really emotional when they receive Christ. I wasn't emotional at all. And so he started thinking about his sin, feeling sorry about his sin. Now I really feel sorry about my sin. So now I'm really becoming a Christian. He went to his pastor and he said, I got to get baptized again. The other ones didn't count. So he did. Fast forward a little bit. By the way, this guy is now the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. They're a mess. No, he's actually great. <laughs> I'm kidding. The future is bright because he's their president. I love the guy. Um, so, so he, uh, fast forward another couple of years, and he starts realizing, he, he said, you know, people who are really followers of Jesus, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross. You, you need to be willing to die, because that's what it means. All right? You need to be willing to die. I don't know that I was willing to, I was sorry for my sin, but I don't know if I was willing to die. <laughs> you know where this is going. Uh, he was baptized four times in his life. All right? So, he wrote a book kind of about this kind of subject a while ago, and he says, listen, there's, this, that's a problem. And, and he came to discover a lot of other people went through the same thing. And some of you are laughing inside because you know you had the same struggle. And some of you are maybe right there right now in, in your life. So um, uh, here's, here's what he says. He says, what if you begin to ask yourself that question? Did I really feel sorry enough for my sin? Did my life change enough? Because I still see sin in my life. Did my life change enough? Did I really understand enough about Jesus when I received Jesus? Um, and... and he says, what if when you start having those, what if, what if you do this? Um, what if, if you can, he says, if you can do this, uh, and let me just read what he says. You can do this as much as you want until you meet Jesus, right? And you finally find, I'm in. Okay, good. All right. He says, that's not what the Bible depicts or how it depicts it. He says, reimagine the that example, you're, you're struggling, you're struggling, you're, you're, was it real, was it real? But this time, instead of coming to Jesus, he says, and going, give me a certificate of some kind, <laughs> feeling something, give me a certificate of some kind that says, I am actually good with God, that I have had enough faith to be good with God. When instead of doing that, you tell him right there, you believe that he died for your sins. Not, not, not to receive Christ alone, you just right now, I believe, I believe what your word says about salvation. I really believe about that you did the work on the cross. It's complete. That I can't do it for myself. I really believe. And then you just hop into his arms <laughs> in your mind. And you understand he's going to take you. Just think of it at that moment. He says, <clears throat> in, you begin to doubt again whether or not you really belong to Jesus. He says, what should you do? He says, do you go back to your mind to the moment when you first hopped into his arms? That's what we want to do. Did I really believe enough? He says, don't do that. He says, it'd be easier simply to think about where you currently are resting your weight. What do you, right now, where are you resting your weight? He says, belief is resting your weight in Christ's finished work, and that is something you never stop doing. The way you know you are doing it now is not by remembering when you first started doing it but by reflecting on the present posture of your heart. And this is, this is what he says. Um, your present posture is better proof 
than a past memory. Are you trusting God right now? You don't need to go back. You don't need to do it all over again. You don't need to get rebaptized. Some of you need to get baptized, period. <laughs> you don't need to get baptized, rebaptized. Your present posture is better proof than your past memory. Now, with that in mind, listen as I read the rest of the chapter beginning in verse 28. Think about this is a passage where Paul goes all out to give us assurance and confidence that we're good with, that if we have been good with God, that we will be good with God. And uh, I was just reflecting on this passage. This, this is the part that definitely makes people's top three lists, if not number one. Paul is so comprehensive here, trying to get across the point that nothing is going to separate you from God's love. Quit worrying about it. Quit worrying that something you've done is going to separate you from God's love. He's so comprehensive. But you know what? You could not write the whole Bible could be assurances. Just bullet lines for, you know, 1,200 pages of assurances. And we would find one that's missing. And we'd say, there it is. I'm not, you know, I can't be confident. So don't do that to this passage. <laughs> He's being comprehensive, all right? All right, so if you are putting your trust in Jesus right now, that's your present posture, and you have received, the, that means you have received the Holy Spirit, that means you have been adopted into his family, then what he's saying here is true for you, beginning in verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ, Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as is written? For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.